Welcome to Vows to Keep Radio with David and Tracy Sellers. The mission of Vows to Keep is to help couples develop a biblically healthy marriage through the application of God's Word and a deeper relationship with Him. They desire to help you and your spouse grow closer to each other and closer to the heart of God's design for your marriage. Now, here's David and Tracy with today's broadcast. We are David and Tracy Sellers, and like you, we have made vows to keep. I sat across from my friend on a comfy couch, and with our drinks in hand, we settled in for a good talk. As she spoke, my heart broke for her. She asked me to meet so that she could tell me what was going on in her life, and just to talk about the things that she was not feeling too good about. So I listened, and she told me how she felt like she was doing all the right things in her life. She was reading the Bible, she was journaling, even listening to sermons in her spare time just to get more of God's Word. Her heart seemed so soft and changeable, and my heart empathized with her as I listened, as she described the pain that she felt in her marriage. But I also felt as though there were some things not being disclosed. There was something I couldn't quite catch that wasn't being said between the lines. Have you ever felt that way as you've chatted with somebody? Like maybe something's not quite as it seems? As biblical counselors, David and I have learned one of the best things that we can do to help somebody is to get to the heart of the matter. And the best way to do that is to ask good questions. Questions that give us insight to the issues, but really have the ultimate purpose of teaching. So I could say this to my friend, did it make you mad when your husband didn't do what you expected? Or I could say, what expectations have you placed on your husband that aren't biblical? And what does God's word say about grace and humility? So I asked, and she let every single one of my questions bounce right off. This young lady came to me for help, but it became very clear that she didn't really want wisdom on how to be a godly wife. She didn't want guidance in God's word for real lasting change. She wanted somebody to help her extract from her husband her ungodly desires and expectations. With her responses, she dodged the heart issues that were at the root. Instead, pointing out what her husband had done wrong or maybe how he had let her down. And it didn't take long to realize that she was putting her best face on for me, but there were deeper issues just under the surface. And I have so been in her shoes. I've done exactly that when I haven't had a heart that's willing to admit that I'm the one that needs help and the revival that my marriage needs starts with me. We're going to start our teaching today by talking about the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector we find in Luke chapter 18. The story goes like this. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, Thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people, the cheaters, the sinners, the adulterers. I am certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared to not even lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus continued the story, saying, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The story that I told about my friend and I having this discussion and the story that David just read from the Bible both have two different kinds of characters. And I think we can see ourselves in every single one. Sometimes we're the Pharisee. Sometimes we're the tax collector falling at Jesus' feet. Sometimes we're the friend saying, 
I've got it all together and my spouse doesn't. And sometimes we're the one that's put in the position to help somebody and can only depend on God's word to help them and not their own opinion. I see this Pharisee in this situation having a lot of confidence and trust in himself. And that really does three things. It takes God totally out of the equation, but we still think we want him around, right? Number two, if we don't come under his authority, we start to obey our own will rather than obey God's word. And number three, confidence and trust in ourselves gives us liberty to view others with contempt. We begin to judge them, not looking at their behaviors in light of God's word and maybe how we could come alongside them to help, but rather we judge, are they living up to my expectations? Our self-righteousness masquerades as true righteousness often, but just like the woman I met with and just like us, there are holes in the story. Something in the way that I'm living my life isn't quite adding up. The two men in this parable had reputations, I'm sure, just like we do, whether we realize it or not. The Pharisee was doing all the right things. People probably thought he was all that in a box of chocolates until they got close to him. Well, the tax collector, he's got a rap too. People had a clear opinion of him. But God is pointing out something very important. God looks at the heart. Others see the evidence of God as you live it. Let me shift gears to a different story. There was a woman who sat in church for 17 years. It never let the word of God change her from the inside out. Now she kept up all of that exterior reputation. She faked it for all of those years, never living it, and is now living fully in depth of her sin. There's a couple who's been in church for 60 years, almost their entire lives. They have an impeccable reputation, yet they church hop frequently to find pastors who will tell them what they want to hear, sermons that tickle their ears. They've mastered the art of faking it and have no evidence in their lives that they are actually living it. Not everyone who heard Jesus speak was teachable. Just because you're sitting under teaching at church doesn't mean you're living it. Doesn't mean your life is actually changing and reflecting what Christ could do in your life as Lord and Master. Today on Vows to Keep Radio, we continue in our Trim It, Live It, Prove It series. And over the last two weeks, we've gotten specific on what the fats are in our lives, how they trip us up, and how we can trim them out. So if you missed those first two broadcasts about trimming it, listen online at vowstokeep.com. And today we're going to get into live it. Learning that living as a disciple of Christ is entirely different than saying we believe he's God's son. We'll learn that having a teachable, moldable heart should be viewed as an ongoing current condition and not a long-term guarantee. So David, I've got a question for you. When was the last time you read through the Gospels in the New Testament? I don't think I've ever read through them just consecutively in a reading plan before. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? But you've read them. Oh, sure. In your devotion time. I've gone through them several times over the last couple of years. In my job on Christian Radio in West Central Ohio, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have been part of our on-air reading program more than once. And if we haven't spent time there lately, I think we should make it a point to do so because such a great synopsis of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. As we read, we'll learn about the miracles of Jesus. We'll see God's heart of love, and you see this fulfillment of prophecy. That's all in there. But so much of these four books consist of Jesus interacting and having conversations with people. I love that. People just like you and I. 
Have you ever wondered if Jesus was here in physical form today, how you would respond to him? Here's a man who looks like the rest of us. He's got a job building houses, a father and a mother. He eats breakfast and keeps a schedule, yet he is claiming to be the son of God. He doesn't respond to situations like you and I would. The things he's saying and teaching are extreme. So how would you respond to him? I'd like to think that I'd be one of his close followers, but in reality, I'd most likely be a skeptic. I'd wonder if the things he taught were worth following. I'd wonder if he would actually come to me and have a conversation. And if he did, would it be worth it to drop everything I'd ever known and follow him? Well, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see a pattern beginning to emerge. When Jesus talks, he is generally speaking to one of five kinds of individuals or groups. The first is Jesus answers those who question his validity, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The second group, Jesus calls people to come and follow him. Now, some respond wholeheartedly, some turn away. The third group, Jesus speaks to those whom he's healing and setting free. The fourth group, Jesus speaks in parables to teach both individuals and groups. And the fifth group, Jesus gives the words of his father to anyone who will listen. And those are his followers. This last group of people, they're his disciples, not just a title for the 12 men that were as tight as posse. No, a disciple of Christ is defined as someone who believes Jesus Christ is the son of God, listens to his teachings and follows his example. A close pastor friend of ours in Minnesota said it this way, a disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. I want to be in that last group of people that Jesus is speaking to, one that he bends down and looks straight in the eye, and I can't help but respond. But you know what? It is not an easy yes to say, because a disciple of Christ is someone who has a heart and life willing to be molded, and that's where it gets tricky, and yes, even a little bit painful, because I think it's one thing to say, yes, I believe in Jesus as the son of God. I believe he died to save me from my sins. I'm even willing to listen to what he has to say. We say yes to salvation, but not so fast when it comes to following the way he tells us to live our lives. It's in this last piece of being a disciple that I can become like another group Jesus spoke with. I'm just part of the crowd that heard his parables. And then I walk away, never letting it change me. I'm just another Pharisee thinking that I've got it all together and I don't need him. I'm just another person. He's healed and set free only to forget to go back and say thank you and then let my life be different because I've met the king. It's a sliding scale. It's a moving target, a roller coaster graph, if you will. Some days I resemble being a disciple of Christ more than others. How about you, David? Absolutely. Some days he's got all of me, all my belief, all my trust, all of my sin laid at his feet, everything. But then there are those times when I'm more like the friend you were talking about earlier. I hear people's biblical advice. I read scriptures. I listen to what the pastor's saying on Sunday. But in the end, I choose to let it all go in one ear and out the other. In the end, I want to only answer to me. I'm only under one person's authority, me, myself, and I. And I might be able to fake it even for long periods of time. I might be able to pretend that I'm a true disciple of Christ. But upon closer inspection... You'd find the evidence to be clear in my life, the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I think, the way I act, the way I treat others. If this doesn't sound familiar just yet, let me give you some examples. We know God is talking to our hearts about something 
that I and you need to change. It's a sin that's affecting our marriage. He's asking you to give it up. But uh, I like, we like that sin, right? I don't want to let go. So often we're only looking at how our sin benefits me, but not really looking at how it's tearing down our marriage piece by piece. Or how about this? Something is annoying me. Basically an expectation isn't getting met and I'd rather try to control the situation to change it to my preference than ask God to give me the grace to be patient and the faith to believe that he will provide for what are my true needs. I show up at church and hear a sermon on the fruit of the spirit, but then turn around and blame my anger on the person who provoked me. And here's another biggie, David. I numb myself in front of technology so I don't have to think about the hard things in my life and my marriage and how to handle them biblically. I harden my heart towards my spouse and the result is a hard heart toward God. We really are as fickle as the weather, aren't we? We waver between being the sold out disciple and totally hiding out from God. And God knows it. I like him as my savior, but submitting to him as my master is a whole nother story. Because I think I know best, but to be a disciple of Christ, I've got to be the follower and not the leader, not the authority. Listen up. When I'm not willing to follow God, but I don't want to denounce him completely, there's only one option left. I start to fake it. I line up all my little ducks in a neat little row for everyone to see, showing them what a great Christian I am. But the people closest to me are seeing an incongruity. I'm not living what I'm confessing to be true. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus has an encounter with a man who from first glance looks like the perfect candidate to become another disciple. This nameless man runs up to Jesus. He kneels at his feet and asks the question that I think we've all considered. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So how about you? Have you been there? You excitedly want Jesus to tell you because you want that eternal life. Now, Jesus answers this guy by listing some of the Ten Commandments. And the guy responds by saying, hey, I got that. He's been following the Bible since he was a little boy. But when Jesus asks him to sell everything he owns and follow him, the man turns away saddened. Jesus wanted to teach him that true discipleship wasn't just something he can accomplish by checking off all the right boxes. Jesus was teaching what a true disciple is. It's someone who follows no matter the cost. You can't fake this. Jesus is asking this guy to be all in, to get rid of the fluff, all the foreign objects, all the fat we talked about last time that are in our lives, to not let silly or even serious things stand in the way of following Jesus with everything we are doing in our lives. Just like my friend I talked about earlier, from all that could be seen from the outside, this rich man was doing the right stuff. He refrained from murder, adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, and I refrained from those things too. My friend was reading scripture, surrounding herself with truth, but here we learn a valuable lesson. Simply doing the right things doesn't automatically mean our hearts are right for change. That makes us little more than a Pharisee, little more than a person faking life with self-righteousness. There is a cost to being a disciple of Christ, but there's also a reward. The cost is temporary, sort of an uncomfortableness as we trim out that fat and the sin in our life. The reward is endless. God's promises for a lifetime, true fulfillment, eternity of matchless inheritance with our Savior. One of your rewards is a marriage receiving the infusion of grace upon grace as you grow in Christ. Now, to be fair, faking it has its reward and cost as well. 
Faking righteousness without getting real before God, really letting him have the authority in the little moments of our day actually feels good for the moment, but it costs in our relationship with God and it costs in our marriage. We have to ask ourselves: was the rich man willing to learn from Jesus or did he simply want to be that Christian hero? Did my friend really want to have a healthy marriage and a God honoring home or was she there to play make believe? What about us today? What does it look like in our lives to be someone who's not just willing to listen to a sermon, but someone who is actually teachable? What would our marriages look like if we submitted to Christ and let him mold us and change us to be a sold out disciple? So let's get pretty practical here, David. Okay. So we're in the middle of this construction project at our house. And the most recent part of this rental process was Oh yes, sheetrock, something everyone loves, <laughs> Yeah, something that I'm not proficient in, but something that David actually has some expertise in. I know he probably would not agree with Minorly. me, but he has experience. So here I was, I was going to measure and make a cut, but definitely did not know what I was doing. Now I could fake it, but the end product probably would not look too good in the end result. Like I want this place to look nice and you probably wouldn't want me cutting your sheetrock. Now I could ask for help and follow instructions and probably get a pretty nice result. Or I could wait for David to point out what I was doing wrong and have to start over. I remember him saying to me, Tracy, don't do it like that. Do it like this. (laughs) And at this kind of comment, I really have got a choice to make. I could flare up or I could become teachable. Now my pride would rather fake it and say, dude, I've got this all under control (laughs) and I'll let you know if I need your help. But like I said, the way the room would turn out would not be ideal. We would have crooked walls and gaps everywhere. Now, if I'm teachable, not only is that piece of sheetrock going to fit, so is the next one and the next one and the next one. That's a little example. But what about the bigger things? What about when your spouse tries to approach you about your anger or your eating habits or the amount of time you spend gaming or on social media? Teachability in Webster's Dictionary means the ability to learn by instruction. It's actually not a word we hear very often. Actually, according to Microsoft Word, teachability is not even a word. But is it in your vocabulary? Would your spouse say that you have that characteristic of teachability? Can your spouse come to you and point out something in your life that needs some change, whether it's the way you're loading the dishwasher or how you acted in anger toward your children? Next to God, the very deity who made you, your spouse probably knows you best. They're qualified to assess where you are and speak into your life. Would they say that you're open and receptive to that? Many of us who are at odds with our spouse don't actually consider them a fair judge of our heart or life needs. Basically, we're judging that they aren't worthy of that position. And therefore, we don't give them that kind of authority in our lives to be a teacher. How about God? If he was on earth here sitting right next to you today, how would you respond to him? And what group of people would you be? Would you be someone in the crowd listening from afar? Would you be a Pharisee looking for an excuse for your behavior? Would you be a disciple with questions, but a deep active faith? If you were to encounter him today on the road, would you run up to him and kneel at his feet like the rich man did? And when Jesus points out the biggest stumbling block in your life, whether it's riches or pornography or pride or selfishness, would you harden your heart and go away from him sad? Or would you be willing to stay at his feet? Would you let him teach you? Would you let him use your spouse to teach you? 
Now, many of us are parents, so consider your children and their obedience and teachability. A three-year-old might not hit their brother when you're in the room, but as soon as the authority in their life is removed for a moment, they're going to steal the toy they want and they might hit to get it. Or consider a 13-year-old. If you're in the room, the choices they make and how they talk might be different from when you're not there. Integrity is what we do when no one is looking, right? There's a vast difference in compliance and true obedience that comes from a teachable heart. Think about it this way. Before our child reaches their first birthday, we begin to transition them to solid food. Before this, they've been nursed or bottle fed. And up until this point, they've had no choice in what they were given. You decided what they ate. Then we get to a point where they begin to develop one of the first preferences of their lives. And it is a pivotal point in your parenting. You're either deciding at that time that they're too young to understand. So you give them what they demand, what they like to eat, or you decide this is the beginning of the teaching of who's in authority and what it means to have a will. You're giving them veggies for their good, but they don't like it. Here's where we can provide what's best for them. We're not standing in judgment of people who've done it differently, but you can clearly recognize parents who have chosen to defer establishing authority in their kids' lives from those who've tackled it early on because they're still having the same fight in different ways with their child who's now three or five or seven or 13. When a child is young, we start by teaching them what authority is. When a child is older, we begin to teach them that what we're doing is for their good. We have to get past just the obedience side of that. The method is this, require obedience early, train reasoning throughout to ultimately turn them loose. To help our kids be teachable, it takes discipline on their part and ours. It takes time, effort, energy, prayer. And just like with our kids, when we wait to approach a problem or a sin, it only makes it harder in the end. We have all kinds of fat in our lives, gorging ourselves on the things of this world, and we don't want what's good for us sometimes. We turn our heads in our high chair when God is lovingly dishing up his word to us. So what's the test for real teachability? How do you live your life as a disciple of Christ and not just a full of hot air Pharisee? In one word, obedience. Here's another way to think about it. People who think they are teachable but live only by their own authority are dangerous because they're wise in their own eyes and they act out their own wisdom. So what's the test that you are faking it? It's a lack of obedience to God's word shown by a lack of submission to his authority in your life. As we conclude today, live it in this series on Vows to Keep Radio. We need to have the humble cry of our hearts be for wisdom from God and a humble and courageous heart of faith to go beyond just listening to actually living in obedience to God's words of wisdom. So often we do make up our own wisdom, like David just said, thinking we know best. When we do, pride immediately follows. Don't miss the connection here. Humility and teachability yields wisdom and obedience and all that reward we talked about earlier. Pride yields foolishness and broken relationships and the evidence shown by a life lived under our own authority. James chapter 1 has these words inside of it. This is picking up in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks in the mirror at his face and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently in the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, 
they will be blessed in what they do. Jesus is on the lookout for disciples who live it. He sees past the show and tell that you try to put out in front of others and looks in the heart instead. Join us next week on Vows to Keep Radio as we continue in our series, Trim It, Live It, and Prove It. And if you miss Trim It, listen online at VowsToKeep.com. Vows to Keep is supported by a team which includes biblical coaches, writers, and pastoral advisors. If you have a desire to serve marriages in your community, we would love to hear from you. Vows to Keep is a not-for-profit marriage ministry designed to bring God's encouraging truth to the marriages of our area. As a not-for-profit organization, our commitment to Christ-like marriages includes providing much-needed services regardless of a couple's financial ability to offset the cost of Vows to Keep operations. If you are unable to donate your time or abilities but would like to help support Vows to Keep financially, visit VowsToKeep.com and click on the donate link. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.